Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into Agriculture of America, AOA. Thanks for being with us here today. We have a lot of ground to cover on the program. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Today's AOA brought to you by our friends at Cenex. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Coming up today, we're going to have a little bit of a dairy focus on the show. We're going to get some updates as to what's happening with the latest USMCA dispute panel ruling between the U.S. and Canada on dairy tariff rate quotas. We're going to talk with Michael Dykes, the president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association, coming up in segment two today. Then in segment three, we're going to learn more about a a new project between the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship and they're doing this in partnership with the Institute of Food Technologists. They're looking at a dairy grazing project seeking to address carbon emissions through traceability. So we're going to talk about that with Joe Tamandel and Sarah Bratager coming up in segment three today. And then in segment four, we'll wrap it up with news headlines. We saw last week uh, that ruling for ethanol that was a uh, a bit of a setback for ethanol with RINs. We're going to get some details on that. A new statement out from ethanol and farm groups. Also, some other court cases surrounding agriculture we're going to take a look at as well. Coming up here at the end of today's program. But we want to start with a look at what's going on in the market trade. Busy day for Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing joining us here as we look at what's happening uh, in these markets near the end of the month. Dwayne, thanks for joining us on AOA today. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. Sorry, it was kind of, like you said, busy last second coming into logging in to, to chat with you here today. So some days are busier than well, that just means yeah. That just means the phones are busy and uh, and you guys are, are working hard with your clients uh, trying to figure out, make sense of what's going on in this market trade, Dwayne. And uh, you know, Tuesday's action, uh, beans and bean oil are up a little bit, uh, but quarter wheat just kind of churted around. I know we set new lows in wheat and corn on Monday, and uh, and overall, this uh, this grain picture, I guess I haven't seen a, a post-harvest rally really uh, kick back in as we've essentially crossed that finish line here, Dwayne. No, we, we sure haven't, and that's just it. I'm answering questions of like, well, is the corn market at a low or not? And when I don't know quick answers to questions, they they turn into longer conversations. <laughs> that's that's why I'm stuck on the other line because I I'm not quite sure about the corn market. I kind of frustrated. I think you know Friday when we went lower, I just chalked that up to light volume, kind of an odd day, half holiday. No one's really trading, but. We accelerated those losses yesterday, and, and now we are again this morning making new contract lows for Dees Corn here this morning, getting down to that 450 area, you know, which is a bit frustrating because it felt like when we were short the market, we targeted 440, 450, and felt like we weren't going to get there. Like the harvest lows were made, you know, back in September, and, you know, we rallied all the way to 520, and it felt like okay, the funds know something I don't; they're buying. But now this market seems like it's flipped and turned to we need to go find better export demand. And with the lower U.S. dollar trending, hopefully we can find some demand very soon here. That's a good point you bring up because that dollar's been breaking. It's it's giving these grains a bit of an opportunity, yet uh, we've got to find that demand in this corn market, especially wheat, of course. You still got a lot of cheap Russian wheat out there on the market and th- this wheat trade not doing the corn market any favors uh, either here, Dwayne. 
No, it isn't. Chicago Wheat hit a three-year low yesterday. Kansas City and Minneapolis, two-year lows. And yeah, those charts look horrible. And that's the thing is once we get down to those new lows, then you hit some sell stops and the selling accelerates. The chart guys sell a little bit more. There is some rumors and talk that Russia might implement an export ban on wheat uh, because they've been exporting so much of it lately. Obviously, the market doesn't care too much about that, and probably rightfully so. They're just getting done with their harvest, so you know, I'm sure they're not running out of exportable wheat right now. So the market's seeing probably right through that rumor and going lower. But I thought maybe that rumor would be enough for the funds that are heavily short this wheat complex to say, well, I'll just take my profits and go home. I don't want to be short anymore, but it doesn't quite appear that way right now. No, it does not. Soybeans, on the other hand, uh, if any grain or oil seed has a bullish story or tilt to it slightly, of course, it's a soybean market. And I know we bounced off the 200-day moving average, I believe, uh, on Monday, mm -hmm. and, and we're holding a little bit higher. Products seem like they've been holding up this soybean market here to start the week post-Thanksgiving, Dwayne. Yeah, and you're right. Um, when you think about supply and demand, our soybean situation domestically is the tightest of all the crops we're talking about. So it, it should have the most upside potential and kind of a nice doji formation yesterday with January soybeans uh, closed where it opened at. And today we've already taken out yesterday's highs. So it does look good. But the reason why we sold off the last couple trading sessions is the Brazil weather looks a lot better. I shouldn't say a lot. They look well, yeah, they do look a lot better. There, there are rains falling. You know, the bulls will tell you, and they're right, that it's, it's light rains and it's not enough to reverse a drought trend. But markets usually don't look at the amount of rain as much as if, if it is just raining, is there more rain forecasted? And, and there is. So that sold us off pretty hard here. You know, if Brazil raised this big record crop, well, then our tight situation doesn't become such a panic situation. But you know, if China would step in and have to buy more of our beans because Brazil's crop size isn't as large due to a drought, well, then we're going to have to rally to ration demand because we don't have the soybean supplies. We're talking with Dwayne Bussey from Bolt Marketing here today on AOA. Dwayne, this cattle market real quick, uh, two days in a row, Friday and Monday of just a sharp mm. sell off here in feeders and live cattle. Try to rally back a little bit on Tuesday, wondering uh, if we just way overdid this to the downside in the futures market. I, I think we did, especially when it comes to feeders. We way overdid this. I mean, now you've got a market that's $15, probably 15 to $17 under the cash market with the rally this morning of $353. Yeah. Um, but man, you got to respect the downward trend line. And the problem is that this market is so violent and so volatile. Every time it rallies a little bit, it, it's hard for producers to even hedge because you're a little bit concerned that, you know, this market does another short covering rally of $5. Well, that that's a lot of margin money. So it's the daily limits are maybe too large for feeders right now. But to answer your original question, yeah, I think we sold off way too far too fast. And we're due for this bounce. The sad thing is we're up 370 right now. We're nowhere close to yesterday's high. So it's not like the chart is looking like a bottom just formed. Well, in terms of the livestock or the grain trade, uh, any thoughts here, final thoughts in terms of risk management that folks need to be thinking about as we wrap up the month of November here? Well, I'd say, you know, don't panic when you look at the corn market right now at lows. Um, 
it, it does feel like a deal where the news is the most bearish at the lows. I, with the U.S. dollar trending lower, I, I feel like we will find a little bit better export demand, especially in wheat too. Remember, China was buying wheat last couple of weeks from us. Now, now it's on a little bit of a Cyber Tuesday type sale here, and even cheaper. So I'm hoping <laughs> hoping to find some export demand here. So don't don't panic too much. But yeah, get your get your targets in place for this winter, but uh, don't panic sell today. Dwayne, if folks want to reach out with market questions, I know they can uh, find you very easily there at Bolt Marketing. How can they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can call us here directly, 605-448-2365, or they can check us out online at boltmarketingllc.com. Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. Thanks for joining us. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, by the way, Dwayne, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Jesse. Dwayne Bussey there with Bolt Marketing joining us here on AOA. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with Michael Dykes, president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association. That's on the way next. AOA brought to you by Cenex, Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil, oil that runs smart. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted card to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Farming is dangerous. There's dangers all around us. We work around it and we live around it every day. And we just become desensitized to what's around us. We go through safety training and, you know, we try and do these things to make sure accidents don't happen, but you just never know. There are so many farmers that I think take for granted all of the underground utilities 
that are there. You don't want to hit a gas pipe because that's your life. The other part of it is if you hit certain things, you're liable for it. I mean, we kind of know what's out here, but all at the same time, you, you just always call. Farm Safe 811 starts with you. Whether you're installing drain tile or doing any sort of digging, always call 811 and wait for any underground lines to be marked and have the depth confirmed. That's farming with care. But if a line does get damaged, go somewhere safe and call 911. Always keep safety in the back of your mind. Just stay humble. For more information, go to farmsafe811.org. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America, brought to you by Cenex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil, oil that runs smart. Well, late last week, a U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement dispute panel allowed Canada to continue restricting dairy access that the U.S. negotiated for under the agreement, upholding the second dispute panel for Canada's dairy uh, tariff rate quotas. Here to talk about this decision that was not friendly to the U.S. dairy industry and talk about the fallout and where we go from here, Michael Dykes, president and CEO of the International Dairy Foods Association, joins us here today on AOA. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for having me, Jesse. I'm doing well. Recovering after Thanksgiving, ready to get rolling again. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I'm uh, I'm recovering from my food coma the last couple of days, that is for sure. And <laughs> You know, it's uh, it was interesting that this news came out on Friday after Thanksgiving and uh, maybe kind of snuck into the headlines a little bit when folks were away. But a surprising setback here for U.S. Dairy, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement Dispute Settlement Panel upheld Canada's manipulative dairy quota administration practices. And I know this is the second dispute initiated by the USTR, so... Get us up to speed. What exactly uh, did we see with this decision back on Friday? Well, Jesse, we are deeply disappointed with the panel's ruling. Uh, I think when you see things come out on uh, Friday of uh, Thanksgiving holiday, it's clearly not good news. It's not something that uh, is out uh, for everybody to see and read, but it's 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 clearly a disappointing news. We were stunned by it. Uh, and the fire, the panel's failure to to even defend the, the most basic rights uh, that Canada agreed to in the USMCA, uh, we think it's a setback for dairy. Um, you know, we we commend the U.S. government for uh, bringing a second panel request forward, and for the we we worked with them, we briefed them on all the issues and how the system actually works, and uh, we we were just stunned and disappointed by what they did but you said the word manipulative practices uh that's you know uh, we 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 had heard all along and were constantly aware <clears throat> of the way canada works uh and that the supply management system is just so far out of balance uh they protect it uh they they prohibit imports uh they cross subsidize their exports they limit production to meet their butter milk needs mm -hmm. uh it, it's it's a major disappointment for our u.s dairy industry we're facing tariffs of uh 245 percent on cheese 298 percent tariff on butter uh, 
So we're, we're disappointed by the setbacks on this. Again, Canada has a long history of manipulating the, the practices to protect their Canadian dairy industry, primarily located in, in Quebec and Ontario. Well, and to your points here with the longstanding practices from Canada, as I mentioned, this was the second dispute. The first one here just a few years ago, uh, Canada lost. The U.S. won that dispute. Canada went in and made a few minor changes, it seems like, to their uh, their TRQs, their tariff rate, quota, tariff rate quotas, and then that's what brought about this second dispute here. Um, so it's really interesting to see that the minor changes that Canada made was enough, apparently, uh, under this uh, latest dispute. And, and now we, we move forward from here. And I guess the question is, where do we go from here, Michael? Well, you know, they had agreed uh, to uh, establish TRQs on 14 categories of dairy products. Um, and those uh, would ramp up over over a period of years. Uh, you know, uh, from 750 tons for butter and cream powder uh, up to over 5,000 tons by 2039. Uh, but despite the changes that they made, despite the uh, TRQ implementation programs have been running, we aren't getting the TRQs filled. We aren't seeing the limited amount of market access that the Canadians agreed to in the USMCA, we aren't seeing that happen. So, uh, and we are also, so we, we, we are going to continue. We haven't given up the, the efforts. Uh, we're going to continue. We are also seeing Canada do much the same things uh, as they were doing with back then, the old class six and seven. We're seeing that under class 4A on uh, cross-subsidizing their protein powder exports. Uh, so, uh, it, it is a disappointing scenario all the way around. Um, but we are, we're going to continue to work with USTR, continue to work with this administration. We have to have enforcement and our trade treaties have to be something that can be implemented and that the, uh, parties to the agreements have to live up to the obligations. Uh, so, it's an important – this is an important issue for us, and this is well beyond Canada, though, Jesse. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada's one thing, and Canada's important for dairy, but uh, we've got to see uh, – it, it, it's time to reestablish the United States as the global leader in negotiating preferential trade agreements with unwavering commitments – if our dairy industry is going to continue to grow as projected by USDA, we're going to need to increase our exports from probably 18% of our production to 23 to 25% of our production. And last year, exports were down 15% by value, 7% by volume, year-to-date 2023. So we're, we must see some change on trade and market access and a return to a negotiating uh, trade agreements. Uh, we joined the rest of the business community in calling for that. So uh, this Canadian issue only highlights one piece, and this is where we are today is around enforcement, and we're failing to see the enforcement 
and we're failing to see the uh, follow-through and the benefits to dairy from the commitments made by Canada when we negotiated the USMCA with them. So it's it's a it's a significant issue, but it's it needs to be thought about in the broader context of mm-hmm. overall trade and where we're going to go in the future. And I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask that question and you you essentially answered it for me is that it, it seems like this is more than just a dairy trade issue with you know under the USMCA, but it's an overall trade issue and overall ag trade issue and i know a lot of folks uh, to your points have been calling for the uh the current administration to look for more free trade agreements and look for you know redoing or finding new trading agreements out there that benefit the u.s and benefit agriculture so it seems to me to your point that this is an issue that goes beyond the dairy issues between the u.s and canada it's a ag trade issue as a whole, is it, Michael? It certainly is, Jesse. It certainly is. And Jesse, I would remind uh, listeners as well that when we don't join into the CPTPP agreement, uh, we withdrew from that. So we are not a part of that from the from the starting phase, and that's that's a significant issue in and of itself. However. Just as I mentioned about the uh, terms that were negotiated in the USMCA on just uh, butter and cream powder going from uh, 750 tons to 5,000 tons by 2039, well, we're not a part of the CPTPP. We, we are not there at the beginning phase, but each year thereafter, for those parties that are part of that agreement, will continue to see improved market access, reduced tariffs, increase, increased TRQ access. We won't be a part of that increasing as well. So each year that goes on, we are further and further disadvantaged by those kinds of things. And the rest of the world, our competitors in dairy, are continuing to negotiate free trade agreements. Those take years to do, and uh, we can't start those and have them completed in six months or 12 months so we're continuing to get further behind it's an important this is an important in the broader context well again a uh, setback for the dairy industry the latest ruling in the dispute uh, settlement panel between the u.s and canada on canada's dairy tariff rate quotas we'll continue to watch the situation the impacts on dairy trade and ag trade as a whole as we move forward with that president and ceo of the international dairy foods association michael dykes thanks for joining us on aoa today michael and we'll look forward to talking to you again in the future thanks for having me jesse thank you good stuff there michael dykes president and ceo of idfa all right coming up next we're going to keep the dairy focus a little bit we're going to learn more about a new dairy grazing project that seeks to address carbon emissions through traceability, a partnership with the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship and the Institute of Food Technologists. We're going to talk with Sarah Bertager and Joe Tamandel to learn more about this. Coming up next on AOA, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, a diesel that doesn't mess around. Back with more right after this. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. 
It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Grains and oil seeds are mixed this morning. Beans and bean oil are up. The other commodities are hovering right around unchanged. Soybeans and bean oil are bucking the bearish grain trend today. January beans, however, had plunged 47 cents down last week. Weather in Brazil is front and center, and after scorching temperatures and dryness sap soil moisture and slowed planting the past week and upcoming week futures, after scorching temperatures and dryness, sap soil moisture and slowed planting, the past week and upcoming week features needed showers. Moisture stress will quickly rebuild this week over an estimated 40% of Brazil's soybean belt, primarily in the center west and northeast regions of the belt. Some forecasters are currently seeing strong support for showers to return to the northern soybean belt in the 6-15 to 15 day period, with better buys for showers in December than what we saw in November. Now that doesn't mean we're going to have a normal rainfall, as normal rainfall in December would be about 9 inches, but there are indications that the region could see sufficient rainfall to reduce yield risk. There is still risk for the area, and we have seen crops die in some locations, but there is still a lack of evidence that this will be a short enough crop to necessitate an increase in U.S. soybean exports above Above current expectations, especially with notable rains expected in Argentina, where they should see a dramatic rebound in production this year. Soybean planting in Brazil is reported to be nearly two-thirds complete, according to Ag Rural, but with the pace thought to be about eight to ten days behind normal, that could move forward both harvest and safrina corn planting in Brazil. And one day after plunging to new contract lows, each of the wheat markets are beginning modestly higher. Paris Milling Wheat Futures also scored a new contract low in the March contract yesterday after having closed lower in eight of the past 11 days. While the dollar index is pulling back, reflecting new three-month lows, and crude oil prices are almost 1% higher ahead of this week's OPEX meeting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. I'm Shanola Hampton. Every day, millions of people face hunger. Today, I will share with you some of their experiences. I'm stuck between paying for medications or paying for food. John from Maine. After paying my bills, I can buy groceries. It's sad to say, food comes last. Alice from Oregon. I thought pantries were for less fortunate people. But anybody could be less fortunate in a day or even a second. Claire from Virginia. The Feeding America network of food banks helps provide over 6 billion meals to people in need each year. No one should have to worry where their next meal will come from. Together, we can end hunger. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. 
AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Right now, we're talking about a dairy grazing project that's looking to address carbon emissions through traceability. Joining us first, we have Sarah Bertogger, Senior Food Safety and Traceability Scientist. She is with the Institute of Food Technologists. And Sarah, thank you for joining us here today on AOA. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. And then also joining us, he is the Executive Director of the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship and a dairy farmer based in Wisconsin. Joe Tamandel is with us. Joe, thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing great, Jesse. Thanks for having us. All right. So for starters, uh, and Joe, maybe you could take this first. Could you tell us a little more about the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship? What exactly is the DGA? Sure. Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship got started oh, about 2010 in Wisconsin, and we basically built it to train kind of some of the next generation of dairy farmers in, in managed grazing dairy, utilizing that, that management system. Uh, so we realized that this was a practice that was real hard to teach in the classroom. But if we took a look at the guilds and took a chapter out of their playbook, and utilized experiential learning through, you know, paid on the job training and related instruction, that seemed like a decent educational pathway. So we we created a registered apprenticeship, started in Wisconsin, and uh, we were the first registered apprenticeship in agriculture in the nation. The apprenticeship became two years, 4,000 hours, 3,700 hours of on-the-job training, uh, and 300 hours of basic classroom type of instruction. Uh, the apprenticeship had then, uh, in about 2015, expanded into other states, and we registered with the Federal Department of Labor. Uh, and now we're in 15 different states. And as a result, we have well over 200 farmers that have been identified as mentor or training dairies. Uh, so that's a little bit of the background of DGA. But we're also watching this, you know, in order for there to continue to be opportunities for apprentices there has to be a sector of the industry that they can operate in, I mean, a thriving sector. And like any sector, uh, we need to be relevant to the larger industry. And that's really what the project uh, is about. The project we're working on is really trying to identify ways uh, that managed grazing can be a tool in the dairy industry toolbox mm -hmm. to do its share in mitigating climate change. And that's what brings us to today. Yeah, and, and thank you for kind of the background on the project a little bit. And I know we'll, we'll dive into this more as, uh, as I was looking through things, the dairy industry uh, trying to reach a carbon neutral goal by the year 2050. And I, I wonder, you know, what's it going to take to reach that goal? Maybe we talk a little bit more about DGA's partnership with the Global Food Traceability Center, which is uh, part of the Institute of Food Technologists. So, Maybe, Sarah, uh, I'll let you go here. Talk about this a little bit more as we're trying to reach this carbon neutral goal by 2050 in the dairy industry. Yeah, so I can't necessarily speak exactly to the dairy specifics, but Joe absolutely can. But I think on a high level, you need participation, not just from the dairy industry, but from the food industry as a whole, or even the whole food system, because our food system is so interconnected that things that are happening in one segment or one commodity are often going to have an impact on a completely different segment or commodity, because their supply chains are just so, they're more of a web, right, than a chain. So, you know, we need to have markets that are supportive of all climate smart ag products, not just dairy. We need 
common food traceability practices across the industry that make it easier for everyone to implement these climate interventions. I see it as kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats situation, right? Where there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things that dairy folks can do alone to make a real impact to emerge as a leader in this climate smart ag space. And Joe can talk to that. But I think that for anyone to truly achieve their carbon neutral goals, there's got to be a level of buy-in from everyone in the system. Sure. Well, and Joe, I'll let you piggyback off of that too, and maybe speak a little more about the dairy industry as we look to reach that carbon neutral goal by 2050. And, you know, I wonder too, you know, what's it going to take for us to realistically uh, achieve that here as we near 2050? Think about it. It's not that far away. I know it's it's still ways off, but as we're working through this project, I mean, speak a little more to the dairy industry and, and talk about this from your perspective a little bit. No, thanks. And and I agree. 2050 isn't that far away. And as we all get a little bit older, we realize how quick time goes. But uh, yes, the dairy industry can reach its carbon neutral goals. I mean, when you look at the innovation and the people that are in this dairy industry and where they brought us to today uh, and just compare it to where it was 50 years ago, 25 years ago, or even five years ago, and the amount of technology that has been bolstered and uh, put in behind the industry, we can absolutely make it. I think, and as Sarah had talked about, it's a lot has to do with cooperation, has to do with actually measuring and verifying within our supply chains and within our markets. And then basically building off of the technologies and the products and the, the practices that we're working on now. And we can definitely get there. The other reality is, you know, I think as an industry, we need to continue to be fearless about what the solutions can be uh, and integrate all solutions, you know, within it as a whole, uh, because that's what's really going to bring us uh, to that net zero. And the other reality is that we need to be looking there, you know, whether or not us as dairy farmers think that this is something that's important or not, I think most do. Uh, But even if you don't, the reality is that our consumers and and not just the retail consumers but the boardrooms and uh the supply chain uh that we're selling to this is a real thing and they're looking at this and if we want to look even beyond our borders and become you know even relevant in the global food supply uh this is a spot where we need to be uh and we need to be able to verify what our contribution is to climate Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sarah, I'll throw this back to you here to talk a little bit about uh, some of the traceability standards. Uh, I, I know we're looking to create some dairy-focused ones, wondering how similar these could be to other standards already in place in the food industry. Could you talk about that a little bit for us? Yeah, of course. So um, Joe mentioned the importance of measurement and verification, and that's really where traceability comes into play because in order for farmers to get credit for their climate smart practices or for retailers to quantify their scope three emissions or for any of us to really do any kind of tracking, there has to be accurate data that's following a product through the supply chain, which is traceability. Um, So our goal is to create a dairy focused traceability standard that will lower the cost and the learning curve for industry stakeholders. But most organizations right now across the food industry have some type of traceability practice, but there isn't necessarily a standardized practice. You've got organizations collecting different pieces of data at different times in different formats. Their computer systems might talk in different ways. It's kind of like if 
everyone is talking about the same topic, but they're all speaking a different language. And so translating a hundred different languages or more so that you can interact with your customers or suppliers gets to be really labor intensive and it can be really costly. So what we're planning to do with this standard is to provide kind of a common language for traceability for all the people within the dairy supply chain. And it'll tell folks uh, what data needs to be collected, when it needs to be collected, how it should be formatted, and how it should be communicated so that regardless of where you sit in the supply chain, what tech you're using, there will be a common practice that works for everyone. And it'll be pretty similar or rather an extension of some existing standards. We'll be basing it off of the GS1 standards. Not everyone is familiar with GS1, but most people have interacted with them by way of barcodes. And they've made them so that they can be expanded or customized for specific products. So that's what we're going to do here with dairy. Joel, I'll bring this back to you a little bit. Uh, thinking about just the project as a whole as we move forward and and learn more about what you guys are doing. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit in terms of the project overall, Joe. Sure, sure. So so what our project is trying to do is um, we're basically working off of a, a grass management tool. So these are for the real intensive uh, grazers. So there's a tool out of the University of Missouri called Paddock Track. Uh, and it, it utilizes, uh, basically, it's a sonar to measure the grass in your field. Uh, and then it talks to the GPS on your phone. So you can give her through the field on a four-wheeler and it'll the sonar will measure the grass. It takes about 50 measurements per second. It knows what field it's in. Uh, and then it'll upload all of that data uh, basically to a chart that shows you your grazing wedge or how much grass is ahead of you in each field. You can make management decisions from that as a as a managed grazer. You know, do we decrease stocking rates, increase stocking rates, drop a field for harvest? You know, are we increasing uh, you know the amount of dry matter on this paddock versus less uh, compared to a different input uh, and the responses we're getting from? So it's a it's a solid management tool at the baseline. What we're also then trying to do because of its high level of accuracy on measuring uh, and the impact and the correlation of density of grass and the root structure how much carbon is retained or sequestered as well as the permanence uh, of that grass we're taking that measurement from that paddock track and we're correlating that to our climate uh, or basically to our carbon retention or sequestration potential uh, so when we look at this as farmers or anytime we look at any of these traceability things or another standard coming out, we're always like, okay, how much more paperwork is it going to take? What else is it going to take to verify what I'm doing? The idea was that with this is that we're taking an actual management tool uh, that we'd utilize on our farm anyway to become better grass managers. Uh, and that same tool is also kicking out our climate impact, you know, particularly our carbon impact. Uh, for this grant. So this is really what the next, uh, you know, several years are that we're going to be working on is to, you know, put all these pieces together uh, and try to, I, you know, at, at the gate, at the farm gate for the farmers, not only identify how much grass they have and help manage their farm better, but help them identify their climate profile. Well, we're up against the clock. Learn more about the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship at dga-national.org. Sarah Bertager, Joe Tamandel, thank you both for joining us here on AOA. Brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Back with more right after this. A promise is potent. Born of intention, fueled by commitment, 
It's seeing things through, always showing up. And we know a thing or two about promises here at Susan G. Komen. Over 40 years ago, we locked arms with you toward one vision, a world without breast cancer. By investing in life-saving research and standing up for patient rights, we are shifting the system so all people everywhere get the care they deserve. Because if you've just been diagnosed and don't know where to turn, we've got you. If you can't afford the treatment you need, we've got you. And if you are driven to raise money to honor the best friend you've just lost, we have a place for you here because of you. We're supporting those who need help today while tirelessly searching for tomorrow's cures. Ending breast cancer needs all of us. Visit Komen.org and be a part of the Susan G. Komen community today. As veterans, we're no strangers to helping others. It's what we were taught, trained, and told to do. It could be for anything. Helping a friend move. Listening to a fellow veteran for hours at any hour of the day. Or just simply making time for people. A neighbor, a loved one, or even a stranger. We're often the first to help others. There's no question about it. But we do have one question for the veterans listening. When was the last time you reached out for help? Perhaps it's time to do for yourself what you would do for others. If you or someone you know needs resources, whether it's for stress, finances, employment, or mental health, don't wait. Reach out. Find more information at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Lance Kennington, an animal nutrition specialist with CHS, about winter feeding tips for beef cows in preparation for calving. Lance, what feed and minerals will benefit cows leading up to winter and calving? Cows need increased amounts of energy, protein, vitamins, and minerals prior to calving. And when you feed a balanced diet in the last trimester of pregnancy, you help the cow have a strong calf and also prepare for the next year's pregnancy. So good quality hay, silage, grain, byproducts, and commercial supplements are routinely used to create a balanced diet. Well, are there different nutrition strategies for seasoned cows and first calf heifers that producers should consider? Unlike mature cows, first calf heifers are still growing. And so after calving, they have to draw on their reserves to repair the reproductive tract to produce milk for the newborn calf and continue to grow to their physiological maturity. The best way to ensure that first calf heifers can do all this and rebreed is to manage them separately from mature cows. They are better able to compete for available resources. Well, how can producers get the most bang from their nutrition buck to optimize performance in their cow-calf herd? Use your farm or ranch resources to their optimum efficiency. So all hay and silage needs to be sent to the lab and analyzed for its nutrient content and then supplemented with protein, vitamins, and minerals that will meet the animal's nutrient requirements. Our nutrition consultants in the company help producers do that every day. I'd also suggest that you have your water tested so that you know what's in it and if you need to make any adjustments to the diet based on the water quality. That's Lance Kennington with CHS joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. 
paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stepacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA, Agriculture of America, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation power to perform. Jesse Allen back with you here, and uh, great stuff on today's show. Kind of a dairy focus as we uh, learn more about the latest USMCA ruling with Michael Dykes earlier in the show from the International Dairy Foods Association. That is definitely an issue we'll keep our eyes on. And then uh, we ran up against the clock there right at the end, but a uh, very interesting conversation with Joe Tamandel from the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship along with uh, Sarah Bertager. She is with the uh, Institute of Food Technologists, and they got a partnership going on right now for uh, looking at uh, dairy traceability standards. And uh, again, you can learn more about the uh, program, the project they have going on, and the Dairy Grazing Apprenticeship. Just go to dga-national.org. Uh, really cool stuff there. All right, well, let's take a look at some news headlines before we run out of time here on today's AOA. A couple stories that are working here uh, in the last couple of days, and we are uh, working to get some more comment on a few of these as well here this week. A coalition representing farmers and ethanol producers on Monday responded to last week's decision of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals remanding to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency its rejection of six small refinery exemption requests. The following statement is from Growth Energy, the Renewable Fuels Association, the American Coalition for Ethanol, and the National Farmers Union. And they say, quote, while we are disappointed by this decision, we will continue to vigilantly defend the renewable fuel standard and fight against the illegal abuse of small refinery exemptions. As other federal courts have determined, the RFS does not impose an economic burden on oil refiners because any compliance costs are passed down the supply chain. All refiners, regardless of their size or location, face equitable RFS obligations, and all of them pass through their costs to comply. This lawsuit was never really about purported economic hardship. Rather, it was about a handful of entrenched oil refineries doing everything they can to dodge their legal obligations to blend renewable fuels and block consumer access to lower cost, lower carbon options at the pump, end quote. Again, that statement, uh, joint statement from Growth Energy, the Renewable Fuels Association, the American Coalition for Ethanol, and the National Farmers Union. Now, we did see that news come out on Friday. Federal appeals court striking down the Biden administration actions on small refinery exemptions. 
The Fifth Circuit uh, for the U.S. Court of Appeals said EPA's April 2022 rejection of 31 exemptions previously granted and the later rejection of 69 more exemptions in June 2022 were not allowed by law. The court said, quote, the EPA denied petitioners years old petitions using a novel CAA interpretation and economic theory that the agency published in December 2021. We conclude that the denial was impermissibly retroactive, contrary to law and counter to the record evidence. We grant the petitions for review, vacate the challenged adjudications, deny a change of venue, and remand, end quote. Now, following the legal challenge were Calumet Shreveport Refining LLC, Placid Refining Company LLC, Ergon Refining Inc., and Wynwood Refining Company LLC. The Fifth Circuit called out the agency for changing the procedure it previously followed in taking the actions as well, saying, quote, EPA's new interpretation and approach, which it applied in the denial actions, displaced the adjudicative methodology the agency had relied on for over a decade, the court said in its ruling. The court said that starting with the April 2022 denial of the exemption requests, EPA has now completely abandoned the scoring matrix. So a lot coming out here with this news that was issued last Friday as uh, many folks were uh, away for the Thanksgiving holiday. And it's something that we're working to uh, get more comment from the ethanol and biofuels industry on what this means moving forward. So we'll continue to watch this story for you, as well as another story that we see uh, in the news here early this week, antitrust lawsuits filed by more than 17 farmers across the country against John Deere will be allowed to continue after a federal court in Illinois on Monday denied a company motion that would have ended the case. The U.S. District Court for the District of Northern Illinois denied a Deere motion to issue a ruling in an ongoing right to repair antitrust case based on the pleadings in the case, according to a DTN report. The lawsuit alleges the company monopolized the repair service market for John Deere brand agricultural equipment with onboard central computers known as engine control units or ECUs. John Deere essentially asked the court to rule on the facts already presented before a trial could be held. Now, in its ruling, U.S. District Judge Ian D. Johnston said the farmer's complaint alleges both constitutional and antitrust standing relevant markets and all the necessary requirements for each count in the complaint. The judge said he expects the case to be a long and expensive process, despite this court's goal of bringing this litigation to a just, speedy, and inexpensive resolution. This order is the first major step on that journey, end quote. A lawsuit alleges Deere violated the Sherman Antitrust Act and are seeking damages for paying for repairs from Deere dealers beginning on January 12, 2018 to the present. John Deere didn't respond to DTN's request for comment on Monday, so that's another case that we're going to keep our eyes on closely here in the news. An Illinois jury also found that several of the country's major egg producers conspired to limit America's supply of eggs in order to raise prices in a case that began in a federal lawsuit 12 years ago. Several large food manufacturing companies in the lawsuit filed in 2011 said producers used various means to limit the U.S. domestic supply of eggs to increase the price of eggs and egg products during the 2000s. Brandon Fox, an attorney for the food manufacturer, says, quote, We are incredibly pleased that the jury held egg producers, Calmain Foods, and Rose Acre Farms accountable alongside United Egg Producers and United States Egg Marketers for conspiring to inflate the price of eggs, end quote. Now, damages will be decided during a trial this week. The jury found the egg suppliers exported eggs to reduce the overall supply in the domestic market and limited the number of chickens available for laying eggs. 
And one final note here today on AOA, Greg Harden, a best-selling author and former associate athletic director of student counseling at the University of Michigan, will be the keynote speaker at the 2024 Farm Bureau Convention. He'll address attendees during the closing session of the annual convention on Monday, January 22nd. Farm Bureau President Zippy Duvall says persistent, patient, and resilient are among the traits that professional athletes share with farmers and ranchers, and that's why Greg's message about coaching and mentorship is so timely, end quote. As Harden counsel more than 400 student-athletes, including names like Super Bowl champion Tom Brady, Heisman Trophy winners Desmond Howard and Charles Woodson, and Olympic swimming champion Michael Phelps. Now, again, uh, that will be part of the 105th American Farm Bureau Federation Convention in Salt Lake City, Utah, January 19th through the 24th. All right, we are out of time here today on AOA Agriculture of America, brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Have a fantastic rest of your day. Thanks for listening to AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home? and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Everyone has a community to lean on. A neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. You've talked with your kids and shared clear expectations, but you're not with them every minute. Your community members, friends and relatives, teachers and coaches, faith leaders, and other important adults in your kids' lives can be your eyes, ears, and a supportive influence when you're not around, reinforcing your messages with your kids and alerting you to warning signs of underage drinking or other substance use. So talk with your kids about these issues and involve the members of your community to help keep your kids safe. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov.